Welcome to Source of Uncertainty, a Bukla podcast for you. I'm Robert Standifer. And I'm Kyle Swisher. And this is episode 31. So every time we do this, we talk about what's new in the world of Bukla, and there's always something interesting going on. Sometimes. Kyle, this, this time, this time there is something really interesting, and it's actually really Bukla. <laughs> <laughs> the 200 series reissues. Finally. And I know. So you're the expert in the world of 200. I'm the expert, sort of, at least on this show, in the world of 200E. So tell, what's what's up with these with these reissues? What do you think about them, and where do they fit, and why do we have them, and what are, you, <laughs> are you excited? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, a wild full circle moment where, um, you know, Roman Filipov has been this... Uh, kind of the main person that started cloning all the 200 issue. Well, not all of them, but a uh, 200 series uh, modules. And, um, and yeah, since uh, Eric took over, you know, we've kind of been hearing um, Eric Fox at Bookly USA kind of been hearing like, Oh yeah, you know, 200 series stuff. They're going to, you know, be coming at some point. Um, and yeah, and he partnered with uh, Roman and then also uh, Josh Hawley uh, from Dark Place uh, Manufacturing and uh, uh, also of Maleco fame. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, uh, they're starting to produce the uh, 200 series stuff. Uh, so it's yeah. uh, seven modules to start out with. Uh, I'm going to list them. <laughs> and actually say their names too because you know you're gonna use all, all you're gonna use all of the show's recording I know, time no go i'll go quick the uh, dual oscillator model uh, 258 the quad function generator model 281 the quad low pass gate model 292c the source of uncertainty model 266 the dual voltage processor model 257 the triple envelope follower model 230 boo and the mixer slash preamplifier model 207. I'm really happy to hear that Bukla has their priorities in order and that 230. That 230s. Yeah. yeah. You know, because they went through the, the whole catalog yeah. going back all the way to the very first 200 series module. I mean, like, we got to do the 230. You know, it's, it's a, well, you know, it's a big up to Mort. I, I'd say that. I'll, I'll give it to him. Yeah, yeah. All joking aside, it, uh, it, you know, we can go back to the episode we did about it and talk about how great it was. It's just a nice, I mean, there are worse, definitely. There are actually, well. They could have put I'll, out, I'll hold, yeah, like the quad preamplifier or something like yeah, that. Which, yeah, something that we're just not going to be able to use. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that would be pretty funny. I, I I had a lot of opinions about this. I Like, I'm, I'm actually for it. I Josh is a friend of mine. Um, I love what he's doing. He's releasing the Sputnik modular stuff through Dark Place. And I like I love Roman's work. So I'm actually excited about the modules. At the same time, I'm confused about who their customer is, given the price point of the 266 is the same as a 266E. But I don't think that that means there isn't a customer for it. And I, uh, you know, I'm saying nobody's going to buy these. I'm just curious about what the market segment is. So it'll be interesting to see that bear out. And even today, I saw a conversation on uh, the Facebook group about which one should I get, the 266 or the 266E? Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's actually a really good question because they're they're different, you know. So if you don't care about presets at all and you're really only looking at the features of the module, at the price point, 
maybe the 266 is a better option if you want the sample and hold, you know, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it'll be, um, you know, they're different enough, like the 281 and the 281E are, diff- are a little different, as you know. So someone might just have a preference. But if you're going into the 200E ecosystem, that doesn't make sense to get a 200 reissue. But um, and so I was like, who's who doesn't have Buchla already that is now going to go buy it for these prices because they're 200 series reissues? But, you know, I am, I, I'm not prepared to say I'm right either way. <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean you know going the whole clone route it's um it's not an easy road like there's just kind of yeah so many different things you gotta navigate with you know getting a case set up and power and um you know up until now you know there wasn't like a company producing stuff so you'd have to uh you know befriend people like uh you know bill Lyons and and uh start commissioning uh diy builds from them if you're not uh so diy inclined and i think they're i think potentially you know myself included it's like there are people out there that maybe aren't gonna be as um i don't know obsessed as like myself to like to just force it and to make that you know like build up a clone system and not be a you know diy person um that it's just like yeah they they want they like the 200 series designs over the 200e i mean we kind of talked about this recently um just you know knowing how how different they truly are um that yeah this is maybe you know they're gonna have to pay a bit more than um than maybe they would getting somebody to build a diy or or getting a soldering iron and, and putting all their time. I mean, that's a thing too. It's like, I think a lot of people don't actually value their time um, yeah. properly when building these things. Um, so, you know, if you just look at components uh, pricing and you're just, you know, it's just like it, <laughs> like it never yeah. makes sense. Like, well, why would you do that? But all the the time you got to put into making these things and, and, yeah, uh, I, we're and sp- I think the quality will definitely be there. You know, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not going to say that the quality is better than or worse than something that Dave Brown builds. I mean, how, how do I know? But I do know that Josh's company does really, really great work um, in Eurorack. So like all my confidence is there that the modules are going to be great. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. for me, you know, as I sort of reflect on it, I think if, I feel like a lot of stuff is missing to make it interesting. Like you can go buy the modules is that they have 258, you know, th- those <laughs> that you listed mm-hmm. and have a, a, basically a complete ish Buchla system. Like actually you've got a voice, you know, especially if you bought yeah. two, 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 two 258s. But until we have the 259 and maybe something like the, you know, the, the complex waveform generator and maybe the 246, type sequencer or the 245, you know, yeah. until that starts to break out a little bit, <clears throat> it's hard for me, Robert, to connect with it. But I, as I was listening to you, I was like, okay, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to, you can go get a Dunnington Audio 258D, but you can't just go buy it on, you know, Buchla.com. Mm-hmm. You either need to set up a build and then get in a queue and, there are great builders, but they're also bad builders. So if you buy a sec, I bought, had a secondhand 259 
was probably like an eighth hand mm-hmm. and like it had all kinds of problems. And so, you know, you, you're, those are all really good points there. If there are people out there that were just waiting for Buchla to have something official before they spent the money on it for yeah. something that is an E and they want the, in their minds, true Buchla experience, then, then that would be a kind of like the same customer for the tip top modules, just wanting the for you format and the banana experience and the bananas. Yeah. yeah. Which is a huge part of it. I mean, I'm not, not going to lie. The bananas are like nothing. Surge has got them. Modcan A has them. Can't get that anymore. But the, you know, the Buchla is kind of that nice balance of, of yeah. uh, bananas and audio jacks. So we got best for both worlds for you here in the world of Buchla. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I'm with you on that, like, you know, the this initial offering, like, it makes sense. It's like a base kind of setup. These are all things that you would want, but there's, there, um, you know, like, coming from this clone world and stuff, those are all kind of fairly easy to pick up, like, on the used market or, or you know, yeah, get builds of them and stuff. So, um, so yeah, looking forward to seeing... You know, if they're going to expand into things that Roman didn't get around to on the on the first pass, you know, he did get yeah. the 288 out last year. Um, you know, love to see some more uh, different touch plate key keyboards or um, yeah, uh, yeah, just it would be cool if Eric won the lotto and then Bukla had Roman and Josh and Dave Brown. And Mark Verbos and the Mems guys. <laughs> so, like, what, what's those? Uh, yeah, where they come? Uh, Joel, of course, make Captain Planet or something, or <laughs> yeah. bring back all of the remaining associates, and uh, that would be and move the whole operation to Berkeley. That would be pretty sweet. <laughs> I'd invest in that. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, looking forward to. Uh, or more stuff from them in the future, um, which we yeah. do get the sense that there is more more coming. Yeah, this is pretty impressive that they got all of these modules. You know, they could have just said the 258 is coming and people would have been pretty excited about that. But it is pretty awesome that they that you pretty much can get a complete Bukla voice and have the 281-292 experience is such an important part of of the Buchla world, and along with the 257, I think, and the 266. So you've kind of got that that whole deal, mm-hmm. like an ESL command on steroids. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the ESL command, <clears throat> not to get us off topic here, because it is Buchla related, but I wanted to, to ask you, because uh, we hadn't talked since I saw this, but somebody was selling their ESL command because they don't have the money to expand it. Mm. And I was thinking, like, who knows, you know, I would love to talk to somebody that worked with Don when the ESL came out, but I did, was the ESL ever intended to be expanded or was it, I mean, it is a self-contained instrument. We both know that. Why would someone, why do you think someone would feel like it needs to be expanded? And since they can't, they're going to sell it. I mean, not to speak for that guy, but, but you know what I mean? You're the ESL maven here <laughs> in this, in this duo, but it's, you didn't expand your ESL. You built a second instrument. Yeah. I mean, with like under the guise of like 
you know, until the other instrument becomes its instrument, it was kind of all supplemental to the easel um, until it became its own its own thing. Um, but I think, I don't know, in my mind, like, I just, like, the 208 by itself is is just not a not a thing it's like it's it's half the package um, well, without the 218 without the 218 like i, I yeah. do see a lot of people yeah. that like like i kind of you know they're just like oh, i'm not into the whole keyboard thing and so then they put other stuff in an easel case and um i think you know the marf can be very successful with that um mm-hmm. but i don't know i'm, I'm just like it's just peanut butter and jelly to me. So in a way it feels like in my mind, it feels incomplete just having it by itself. So then it's like, yeah. well, I need to expand this like, or it, that's the way it, it should be. Um, yeah. even though that's not really, you know, the whole intent was just to make, give the thing more, um, uh, different connections that it could connect with other stuff via MIDI or, that makes sense. He he didn't have the two eighteen, of course. He only this particular gentleman only had the ESL command. Mm-hmm. So I I see it's basically like a four U wide module in that regard. So thinking about when I had the ESL K with the two twenty three E in it, um, that was a lot of fun. But when I swapped it out for the two eighteen, that's when the ESL really came to life. Yeah. So yeah, but you wouldn't have sold your ESL your ESL ESL if you hadn't been able to expand to a 200 system though, would you have not? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, no, because I feel like, well, it's, I mean, I've always thought like, as I was building this other system up and everything, it's just like, well, I can always fall back on the easel and just use the easel, you know, as itself. Like I'm going to play a show at the end of this month. Um, and you know, it's so like I can I can tote around the the eighteen U, <laughs> um, and it's like, but do I want the eighteen U and the easel, or you know, that's kind of what's great about the easel is that it's uh, uh, pretty compact. And so I was like, well, let me just fall back on the easel. Let me just do this set, just you know, just making an easel set with a delay pedal and call it good. Yeah. So yeah. There's something to be said for that. You know, when we saw Todd Barton, those take a drink all those years ago, um, and he had just his easel and a looper pedal and maybe an effects pedal, but basically the easel and the looper pedal. Do you remember at the beginning of that show, he had lifted it up to show us in the audience and it unplugged the, uh, Oh yeah. <laughs> the audio. And he was like, what's going on here? <laughs> but anyway, he, uh, I, I think back to that cause I'm waiting until Buchla comes out with a new 218 or whatever they would call mm-hmm. it. And then I plan to get another easel um, because I really, really miss the experience of playing it by mm-hmm. itself without, you know, sometimes I would just do the minimal patching just to get the keyboard at the 218 into the oscillators, you know, and then just move the sliders around um, without necessarily patching a bunch of stuff up. So I kind of miss that. So that, like I said, it was a bit of a tangent, but um, that really sparked my my curiosity, because around the same time I saw that post, I saw something from someone saying that Charles Cohen was able to create cello sounds with his easel and the, you know, that he was a master of, of course. Mm-hmm. And our guest today was talking about the cello. And uh, <laughs> so I was like, this all ties together. I have to make sure to ask Kyle about it. 
<laughs> yeah. So we got a good show today. This one was this was an adventure. Yeah. Um, you know, it was uh an adventure. <laughs> That's the best way to put it. It was really, really fun. Um and had a great time talking to David Keane, who's our guest today. And uh just just to say he's a character and we've been chatting on Facebook Messenger since then about various things and and that it's like the I just find out that he had for some period of time like the the emu oddity. Not yeah. A, but V <laughs> in his possession. Yeah. <laughs> so I asked him, How did how'd you get that? Oh, that's a great story. And then nothing. <laughs> I'm sitting there, you know, he left me on red. <laughs> but so super, super yeah happy and that's what David. you know we get oh if you've been following along and listening to the show for long enough um david's name has popped up several times in different yeah. episodes and we kind of found out early on that um he's maybe the person that kind of commissioned uh, a few modules from don um that then kind of maybe led to him um you know, starting to make modules again and, and, and started doing the 200 East series. Um, but man, David's done a lot of other things too. And we, we get a little bit of his past, but we do kind of mainly focus on, on Bukla, but you know, we need to, yeah, probably just need to set up a whole different show and, uh, you know, talk to him yeah. <laughs> weekly about, uh, different, uh, yeah, different rabbit holes that he's gone down and, and stuff. He's, <laughs> He's unearthed. It's pretty good. I'll, I'll share a little behind the scenes info for, for our listeners that, so we're talking about during the, you know, the interview, uh, we're talking to David about stuff and then he goes off on this really interesting tangent and which for us was like, awesome, but Kyle has to go and edit all that out. <laughs> so he had to jump in and slice out the stuff that wasn't, you know, part of the, cause he's asking me, you know, what I work on and like what, <laughs> where we live. And you know. it's like, yeah. So the two ninety nine came out around 1970. So Robert, what do you do for a living? <laughs> it's just so funny. I loved it. But yeah. Poor Kyle, man. It's like a second job for you sometimes. Yeah. It was a, it was a, yeah, it was a rough uh, edit, but I think we, I think I landed it as I, as yeah. hopefully you all will hear. Um, it's a note on that too. We we had a heck of a time kind of just getting this interview um, recorded properly. Um, so yeah, there's some kind of uh, audio uh, messiness in there. You'll hear kind of uh, David's kind of uh, recording will change about 45 minutes into the interview. Um, so, you know. Yeah. Grin and bear it. The, the, there's just insane amounts of information yeah. that that we yeah. get to hear about from him. And, you know, modules that we've only, you know, seen in, you know, in passing in a way. And it's, yeah. uh, it's pretty it, rad. It was like he was in the warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so he, he's got his camera on. And he pans it around his office to show us, you know, one thing. And then we just see all these other amazing things just blur by. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we saw one thing. I was like, 
is that a two thirty two? Does that thing actually work? Like, what's that? And like, <laughs> didn't like, even get into it. Yeah. It's like, oh my god. Yeah. Um, well, spoilers. The um, <laughs> the the featured module today. Speaking of David Keene, <laughs> kind of tangentially again, is the two sixty e duophonic pitch class generator, and um, which is you know it's been a long time coming. I've been excited about this module for some reason. And we want to, of course, extend a huge thanks to Alex Rausch. I'm sorry if I don't say your name right. Alex Rausch for letting us uh, borrow his 260E so we could do this app. And Kyle got to make carnival music and <laughs> make fun of me with a, uh, actually troll me with a, um, a shepherd tone, which is nothing. I, I never thought I would ever say that in my life. <laughs> so it's something like you ship. It's not a Rick roll. It's a shepherd tone roll. <laughs> <laughs> now every time you send tone, me a YouTube I love a tone link, roll. like I'm gonna get tone rolled, <laughs> I know it. He's like, check out this Smashing Pumpkins song from a bootleg. It's like Kyle, damn it! <laughs> so yeah, this was this was a fun one. I'm still feeling the energy from it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's good. So um, in a little bit of a flipped format, we're doing the interview uh, first. So because it kind of. Um, yeah, tells the story about the 260E a bit. Um, yeah, really glad we did that because we would have had to redo the whole 260E segment. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the interview informs the uh, the deep dive. So, um, so yeah, we'll get into our chat with uh, David King. Okay, we are here with David Keene. David, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. So. So much to talk about, Kyle. Where so to start? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Bukla specific, so let's. <laughs> yeah. How, so how did Bukla, the instrument, I'm guessing it's before the person entered your life. When did that start? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. How exactly did it? I mean, I've it's been sort of a orbital thing for me for since I was a kid, you know, the Buchla stuff. I mean, I had a copy of uh, wild bull when I was in high school, you know, and uh, yeah. silver apples and all that. I mean, I was just like, you know, I just, like, where do these sounds came from? This is before I got so jaded with bleeps and bloops, you know, but uh, I, uh, I, I really was curious about, um, where those noises came from, you know, and boy, back then, you know, knowing anything about the Buchla box was really, it was scant information out there for this, you know, for sure. I mean, it was, it was hard enough just finding out what a Mellotron was and that it played tape recordings, you know, much less, you know, what this crazy thing that some other guy other than Bob Moog was making that made all these wacky sounds, you know? So, um, yeah, but, uh, Specifically, instrument-wise, the first Buchla I bought was a 400. Um, I found the 400 for sale, I think, in the back of Keyboard Magazine uh, from the University of Miami, and uh, and I bought it. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, I, it was it was just like it's like you see, you know, if you're if you've got zoological interests and you see a unicorn for sale, you just kind of don't even think about it. You just buy it, right? <laughs> and that's kind of the way it was. Okay, well, you know, I don't even care if it doesn't work. You know, I just want to have one of these things in my hand. And and the the genesis of the Oddities Foundation collection had already started years before that. Um, 
but that was uh, that was a that was a big one because you know it shows up at my door and it powers on. There's no monitor, so that was a problem. So I had to go out and find an old RGB monitor for it, and uh, finally got it plugged in and a full you know selection of OS uh, on three and a halfs. You know, and um, I had to get a I had to get a, a properly timed disk drive for it because it's a really slow baud rate with that thing it it it, it wanted uh it wanted some pretty pokey information so we had to get the right disk drive interfaced with it and then finally managed to figure out uh, that you press f to load the operating system when you turn the thing on i mean even that i mean how arcane is that it doesn't say <laughs> load or anything it says it's a b c d e f well you hit the F button and it'll go hit the drive and it'll see you know that it's formatted properly and it's got the information so then it loads up and and voila, you know, here's this screen with all of this crazy graphics on it. You know, it was really yeah. it was. It's a, have you ever seen a 400 in action? No, just it's pictures. amazing. And and uh, there was a couple of a uh, couple of couple of pieces that were actually written in there that was uh, that was on at the moment. But anyway, so I bought that thing, but I we really couldn't. You know, I was just having a hard time. Like the empirical method with Buchla instruments is. Lots of times is all you're left with, you know, back then. There's like, there wasn't anybody to ask these questions of, you know. And yeah. Um, yeah, I was just trying to figure out how to do some basic stuff with it. The joysticks kind of are notorious for not working very well, and that one didn't work at all. And So moving stuff around on the screen was hard and, you know, et cetera. So um, that's why I contacted Don, and this would have been 1994. Okay. Check that, 95. Uh, I was living in Seattle. I was living on on Finney on Finney Avenue up the hill from Fremont, and um, mm-hmm. you know, going to the Red Door on weekends and you know whatever. Yeah. And uh, uh, I called Don and uh, I said, you know, hi Don, I'm you know X Y Z, and he said, uh, well, what do you want? <laughs> you know, <laughs> typical or taciturn fashion. He says, uh, what do you want? I said, well, I've got a I've got a 400 click. He hangs up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately, he didn't say goodbye. He didn't say, up yours, you're on your own. Nothing, just click, you know. And, uh, wow, okay, well, that's, you know, uh, B, you know. So I let it sit for a while, and I, and then I called him again, and this would have been like three months later. And um, he said, uh, he said, listen, man, what do you want? And I said, well, do you have some documentation I could buy? I would happily pay you for some documentation for this thing. If you've got a manual or anything. And, you know, when you mention money, then sometimes, you know, even Don Buchla wakes up a little bit more of his social consciousness. <laughs> it comes up to, you know, a little more lubrication on there. You know, it's, it's good. And so, uh, he said, yeah, I could probably scare up a manual for you, you know, so, and it'll be X number of dollars, whatever it was at the time. And I said, fine. So I, I bought a manual. And, uh, and it showed up like, I don't know, months later, you know, in the mail. And by mm-hmm. then uh, I was making plans to start the first oddity studio in Los Angeles in Burbank or not Burbank, North Hollywood actually. And, uh, so, you know, this happens. Um, I moved down to LA and, and with all this gear in tow and, uh, start the first oddity studio, um, on Burbank Boulevard uh, at Lancashire or between Lancashire and, and Vineland. 
place, next to a place, famous place called Anawalt Lumber, which is a big lumber yard next door. It was a bakery that we found and, um, and we, and we installed, you know, we're wheeling in big Moog modulars and a McClavier, you know, and a Bosendorfer grand piano and, you know, Hammond organs out the wazoo, you know, I mean, just on and on and on. And it was the first attempt to, to bring all of this electronica to a recording studio environment in a recording capital of North America, you know, one of them anyway, yeah. and, uh, and make them available to composers and recordists and whatever, you know, that was the whole mission. Uh, as we were talking earlier, before you started the show, you know, the idea is to bring uh, this palette of rarity, sonic rarity to the world in a way that can actually be used. It's not just in some guy's closet, you know, that's showing his kid sister how this thing works. It's actually, you want, you're working on a new movie soundtrack and you need some more sound that you don't, you can't find on a, you know, a DX seven disc from angel music or something, whatever. Yeah. Then, you know, you might want to come in and, you know, run some tape and go around the room and make some, make some funny noises, whatever. So anyway, um, so I'm, I'm there for just a few months and I get a phone call from Dan Slater from out of the blue. And, um, do you know Dan? No. Oh, okay. Well, you need to know Dan. Uh, <laughs> Dan Slater is, you know, one of the biggest Buchla fanatics ever. Uh, he worked for JPL for a number of years, uh, was kind of retired from that, I think, uh, Lots, a lot of Buchla gear, very serious, um, super intelligent guy, you know, and just, and he dug deep. I mean, when Don designs these multi-layered instruments that are seemingly impenetrable to some people, uh, not to Dan. And uh, you, Dan can talk to you for hours about the different iterations of, you know, of the Buchla gates and why, you know, et cetera. Mm, mm -hmm. And, um, Dan had the only instrument I would never able to put my hands on with Buchla. I've had everything Don's ever built, including things that were just prototypes, uh, like the wind and rain models wow. and, you know, et cetera. Dan had a Buchla 500. Oh. And there were only four of those ever made. The, the one of them was at the Sonia Henney Museum, and that was destroyed. I followed that one. And uh, not all of it was destroyed, but lots of it was destroyed. And, uh, and Dan had one, um, I don't remember where his came from now, but he could tell you, but anyway, uh, but it was kind of odd because it didn't have the Buchla 500 front panel, which I had one of that I'd gotten from Don, but you know, all the other Buchla stuff we've had except for that one. And so I would, I would go up and, you know, check it out and Dan's place. I think he's in San Diego or somewhere in Orange County perhaps, mm -hmm. but, um, Anyway, so Dan calls me up and he said, you know, uh, hey, you know, uh, Don this and Don that. And I said, yeah, you know, I've tried to get next to the guy and it's difficult. And he goes, yeah, yeah, it's hard. But, you know, so he's giving a lecture and a performance at the Science Center in Anaheim uh, in a couple of weeks. You should go with me. And he was uh, with a, a woman, Susan, someone I can't remember her last name now. Uh, almost had it. Anyway, uh, she performs with clay ocarinas and flutes that she makes herself. She does this wonderful thing with hmm. acoustic instruments all. And Don was doing uh, an exhibit with Joel. I think Joel was there for uh, Marimba Lumina and lightning, of course. Uh, any, any 
performance of Marimba Luma back in those days almost invariably had lightning involved because Don liked playing the lightning a lot. That was one of his favorite instruments to mess around with, and the marimba as well. But uh, Joel had this really cool little uh, performance he would do with the lightning where he's raising the, the pitches up off of the, the, the keyboard of the, of the marimba you know, with the lightning <laughs> sensors. You know, he's doing all this really cool stuff. He was very clever with all that. And um, so, so we go down there and I, and I took, you know, some oddities foundation material with me down there. And uh, when I met Don, I, you know, I, I showed him all that. And we talked a bit about it, you know, and about what we were doing and, and the idea behind it, et cetera. And he just turned 180 degrees and suddenly he's like, you know, wants to be like up in this and we're talking about it a lot. And, you know, he's, and we get to be friends friends outside of having anything to do with oddities at all. But, you know, just, uh, we just got along really well. And, you know, what I said about, you know, him, me being the, maybe the only person he never yelled at, that's true. He never raised his voice at me at all. I already raised it at other people, but I never got, I never got the full fury from, from, a, from a pissed off Don Buchla. But, but, uh, but we, you know, we, we, we did a lot of stuff together. I mean, you know, as the, as the 200 uh, collection grew, um, I bought a 700 from him. And uh, he explained to me, you know, why that thing was such a problem. It was because Lynx Crow, who was the programmer for the 700, um, mm-hmm. left a lot of debug code in that instrument. It's just full of, of test code, debug code. It's just, it needs to be cleaned out. It needs to be, needs a rotor router, you know, mm-hmm. in there. And Lynx is not available anymore. So that's not happening. And so that's why the 700s, even though they're kind of provocative in lots of ways, um, the one I had, which uh, Alessandro Cortini has now, um, we messed around with it a fair amount, but it wasn't it wasn't that. It's a museum piece. It's not a studio piece for me. You know, it just really never. I don't think it was ever finished. Really, you know. Gotcha. I did an exploded version of it. That's uh, that I think is uh, also with Alessandro. Um, and the reason I did that is because the instrument was doomed by uh, an Intel chip that was his video, uh, his video chip in that instrument um, was doomed to obsolescence very soon after he got it. They found some fatal flaw in that thing. And, and the whole instrument was wrapped around this, this video uh, chip that he had in there. And uh, <clears throat> so the whole Bukla 700 enterprise, the whole empire fell down around his ears because of this chip failure, which to me is, you know, it's one of the ironies of Don's life is that, you know, he would go to all this trouble to build this crazy thing and then have something like that bite him so hard that it failed it completely, you know? Yeah. It seemed like he was just always on that cutting edge um, of that technology. Yeah. But in between of like, well, is this really going to get adopted? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't really think that was a concern for him. You know, he, I mean, he's truly an art-driven musical instrument designer. I mean, you know, um, I mean, Bob was too, except for Bob had, you know, a lot of other people that were trying to turn this into a big moneymaker, you know. I mean, so that low-hanging fruit is always there, but I, Don hardly ever went for it, really. I mean... You know, he had various run-ins with other companies, as we know, over the years. CBS screwed him pretty hard. 
you know, that was a bad deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had an association with Kimball Piano to do this, what became the stanky uh, MIDI piano thing with Bosendorfer and, and Kimball. That was from Don. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Henry Yankowitz at, at Gibson roped Don into the OBMX thing, which was Oberheim vis-a-vis Moog vis-a-vis Don, you know, Don trying to make this OBMX thing work, you know, and, and that went badly, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, he's the, he's the kind of guy that if he wasn't such a control freak about everything, he would have just let somebody else handle the business. Everything would have been fine, you know, and I mean, I really do believe that. But he, but he had a hard time letting go of anything to do with the business, you know. Yeah. And but when he was designing, you know, he was he was a genius. I mean, you know, obviously. But uh, so anyway, so the the instruments, you know, continue um, to shorten the story a little bit. Um, over the years, uh, I used to do a lot of composition for for well, uh, some composition, I should say, not a lot, but some composition for modern dance and with a group of composer. Uh, choreographers rather in New York, uh, Dee Dee Dorvillier and uh, Jennifer Monson being the two that I worked with. And um, I did a piece with Dee Dee um, in uh, 2003 that was mostly Buchla. Uh, and we had two large Buchla zero suitcases stuffed to the rafters. And um, that, that particular piece is called Dress for Floating. And it won a composer's award uh, with a, a, a Bessie award with the dance theater workshop in New York in 2003. And it was all Buchla uh, with a, a few uh, little things flown in here and there. But the, the, the sort of the genesis of that composition was wrapped around uh, doing what I think David Toop started. I could be wrong about who started this. It was either David Toop or it wasn't Rosenboom. It was one of those guys from that era that came up with this really cool circuit that was uh, that they called pea soup. And I did a version of that. And the pea soup thing worked with uh, microphones uh, feeding into speakers in a dance space that could be interrupted. Um, in other words, there's a thing going on, like, for example, maybe uh, some weighted noise or, you know, an oscillator drone or something like that that's that's being filtered and maybe even pitch shifted. And it um, uh, it's cycling, uh, doing a very so, slow cycle usually. Okay. And um, so the microphone is intercepting the audio from the speakers that are placed on the dance floor at the level of the dancers. In other words, the 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 their panel speakers that are like two feet off the floor and microphones mounted similarly across the dance space and. Um, their interaction with that acoustic feedback situation uh, does something. It, it's a, it's an event causing moment when the dancer interacts with it. It could be some some uh, filter change or some sequence or speed thing or whatever. And the idea, of course, is was to make the was to make the uh, the dancer more the driver of some of the sonic elements of the piece. If you get me. Yeah, that's amazing. So w what happens is that uh, Don, that year, 2003, um, I used to race motocross. I did that most of my most of my years. And uh, I had had a bad accident and I was laid up in bed for a few months with a really horribly broken leg. And Don flew up here to Calgary and spent a couple of weeks with me. 
And while he was here, we were talking about this latest piece uh, with Dee Dee. And um, mm -hmm. I said, you know, Don, I was like, there's modules here that I really wish you'd make, you know, and I, I hadn't commissioned anything from him in a while. I'd done something a few years earlier, but um, I said, you know, why didn't you ever build a lag processor? You know, like, like that would really be great in your system because for this pea soup mix uh, circuit that I, that I came up with, um, I had to dedicate, you know, a, uh, a 291, you know, a 292, and I had to dedicate an envelope follower and this, all these modules I had to get going to make this work. And when, when just a simple ARP 2600 lag processor would have done the job. Yeah. And he kind of cocked his head as he would do when he was thinking about something. And he said, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I never did that. And he goes, well, how many did you use? And I said, well, I needed four of them because I had some microphones suspended above the, above the dance space that we were doing some things with as well. And, um, so the next morning, you know, we're sitting there having breakfast and he pushes this napkin across the table at me that has this design for what became the 255. And, uh, he said, well, how would this be? And I'm like, yeah, that would, that would really be <laughs> fantastic. Uh, you know, we've got eight lag processors there. That's great. You know? And he goes, well, I could make you some of those. And I said, all right, well, let's, let's, you know, let's do, let's do four of those, you know? And, uh, so we start talking further and it's like, well, Don, why don't you just like, why don't you just start making this stuff again? I said, do you realize what kind of money people are charging for these things? Like they're, they're just, they're, you know, worth a lot of dough out there. And seriously, yeah. you know, you should be getting some of this. And, uh, cause he wasn't financially doing that great at the time. And, you know, I mean, the, mm -hmm. the marimba was hugely expensive, huge. You know, and he and Joel and Yasi and, and his crew down there were working really hard to try to make a go of this thing. And it was uh, it was difficult. You know, lots of times people weren't getting paid, you know. And yeah. so, um, I mean, what they would get in Bukla tradition, often they were getting paid in instruments. You know, that's that's <laughs> the way he's kind of always done it, actually, back to the 100 series era. You know, he's down at the, you know... <laughs> down at the Longshoreman's Hall, whatever that was, you know, building stuff with Rory Spiegel and, and Suzanne and Charles McDermott and all these people that were musicians, composers, performers working for Buchla. And he wouldn't let them play music, by the way. He would never let them play music in the shop. That was absolutely for both, you know, that was no music. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Ironic. But anyway, uh, so... You know, to you know, he needed. I, I felt like it would be worth looking into. You know, doing the two hundred stuff again. And he's like, "Nah, maybe." You know, I'll let me think about it. So he does the two fifty five, and then um, I had the silicon cello uh, that I bought from Don. And uh, do you know about that piece? Do you know that that instrument? I think I've only seen like the faceplate of it and it's, it does it have to do something with like, um, like recreating scores or reading scores or something like that. Well, yeah, there's a score written for it. Okay. Uh, the Silicon cello was written for his wife, Amy Rudenskaya. She was a cellist and a mathematician. She actually taught math at, uh, Pomona university in Claremont, California. Um, so um, Don, again, you know, in typical fashion, he like, 
what drives him the most is when a composer or a performer has a need. Yeah. You know, it's like the, like the 255, you know, was an, a, a direct result of that attitude, you know? Um, yeah. Or, or more in general way back when. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of them really. I mean, uh, <laughs> what Alan strange, I mean, Alan, you know, was using some 200 stuff, but he wanted, you know, a portable system. So, um, you know, here comes the music easel, which was a direct collabor- collaboration between Don and Alan, yeah. you know? Um, so yeah. And then Alan wrote that famous now famous book on electronic music, which also mm-hmm. came from all that. And, uh, then what do we have? Well, we have Charles Cohen gets a hold of a music easel. And the next thing, you know, Charles Cohen's making all this fantastic music with an easel, Yeah, you know? So all of this stuff is, is really very organic and how it develops over time. And, um, which is why I think it's kind of important to sort of tie these things together from, you know, a musicological standpoint, we kind of need to know where, what, you know, when and how, um, yeah. but with Amy, he wrote this, uh, designed this circuit that is still a bit of a mystery to me. Um, it, uh, it has envelope following envelope detection, uh, pitch following and some other voodoo that I don't get at all. And the idea behind this thing is it, it was a it was a, it was a module that controlled, um, you know, just just gates and and uh, and a source of uncertainty circuit, and um, see what other modules. Well, obviously amplifiers and uh, and a two forty one and two ninety twos. You know, I mean, it's just the usual stuff. Yeah. But the way this thing worked is it had a, you have a microphone that you plug into it, and it has a counter. And it's looking for you to play seven phrases that have a special timing written into the composition of the phrases that comes from the the uh, the cello. And so she's playing this cello. She's playing the the phrases that he's written out, and the silicon circuit is listening. And when it it finally gets to the seventh phrase, and you can see this progression of LEDs across the across the uh, module. Wow. It's got one. Now it's got two. Now it's got three. And when it gets to number seven, it responds. And then it responds in a uncannily relevant way to what you've played. And then you play to it and then it plays back to you. And you can do that until it finally reaches some end phenomena that I, I can't, I've, I mean, I've played with this thing a million times with Don and, um, and I still haven't figured out exactly when, why, or how it decides to play its last phrase, but it does. And there's no memory. There's no, there's no computer in here. There's no, you know, there's no storage device or anything inside of it. So, I mean, it's a, it's a really very clever, really very clever circuit anyway. So, um, <laughs> I, I wanted to incorporate that in a composition. And so I said, you know, could you, could you build, you know, a 299 module? that's, you know, smaller, you know, because that was a double, uh, space module and it's very fragile. It was all, you know, the front of it's got a big breadboard rat's nest of wiring on it. And, uh, so he did, you know, as another commission from us and, and he built three of them. I asked him to build three. I said, I want two for us and one, you know, one for you to keep there so we can troubleshoot it, et cetera. And I said, and promise me that you, you know, that you, if you decide to sell the third one, that, you know, you offer it back to, to me first, you know, because basically I was just, I mean, once, 
the, the silicon circuit is like it's the genie in the bottle, and once it's out, and, and everybody's got one, then it doesn't matter anymore. You know, it's that kind of thing. And so, what's what's unique and crazy about it is 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 uh, in a large part. Um, it's unfamiliarity. You know, what it's doing is like so unique. And, uh, anyway, so, uh, he, he built three of them and sent the two of them up here. And then he came up to Calgary again for another visit with Nanique that time. And, uh, they spent, you know, a, a week and a half here and we went downstairs into the studio and I built what we call the Silicon silly, which is, uh, two silicon okay. cello, setups in one folding 200 e case so it's got two of these 299 modules in it uh that circuit only uses uh two channels of the gate so we only had to have one of those in there and um so you know anyway uh, a pair of 259s uh you know won't work with a 258 because you have to be able to to do wave shaping and whatnot um and uh, oh yeah it also um, made you know significant use of the, the source of uncertainty module uh, times two. So mm-hmm. that's what's in that box. And then then it also has some uh, interfacing audio interfacing stuff in there as well. So we got it all put together, and and uh, Don and I sat down in the studio and listened to this thing play with itself for like hours. <laughs> we would just like you know we'd get up in the morning and. Just, Go down, and I have recordings of all this, as a matter of fact, but uh, oh, go wow. downstairs after breakfast and turn on the Silicon Silly and just let it do its thing. And it's it's astounding what it does. It really is. It, I mean, I, I'm surrounded by all of this, you know, fairly uh, easy to predict electronica, you know, mm-hmm. and this thing surprises me every time I turn it on. So anyway. Wow. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear something like that. Yeah. I'll send you something sometime. I, I, I mean, it's all downstairs on the hard drive. I don't know whether it should just be released, you know, the hours worth that it is, or if it should be edited down to something, you know, or not. I don't know what to do with it, frankly, is kind of the thing, but no, no. Yeah. I think there are many people that would take it, uh, take an hour of that and uh, really enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Um, so, the next thing that we did was the barber poles, and that was a mistake. Um, I hate, hate to tell you. <laughs> um, what happened was, um, I, I, well, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, but I, I had, uh, I had a Boda uh, vocoder here, and I had been looking for uh, a Boda um, barber pole, and those things are, you know, like as we say, rocking horse shit, you know, you can't find them anywhere in the world. Um, <laughs> so I was thinking about it one day and actually I had a Eventide instant phaser downstairs and I was uh, working on a piece for, uh, for Jennifer Monson, uh, composition. And I, and I wanted to add some phase shifting to it, but it, you know, it's not voltage controllable. And I thought, you know, really this sounds like a Don thing. So I called Don up and I, I said, you know, could you build a barber pole? phaser you know and you know like like the boda unit like that would be great if it had vc you know and etc cetera, etc cetera. i said does this sound like something you'd be interested in doing you know offering him another commission which he never said no to as a matter of mm-hmm. fact uh it was just a matter of money of course and so 
he said, yeah, no problem. And the next thing you know, he sends me this, well, he sends me the artwork. Um, and, um, I'm sorry, what are the numbers of those guys again? What's the, what's the, uh, what's the, uh, dual pitch class guy called? What number is that? That's uh, the 260. So, and then what's the phaser? 261? The phaser is 297 is the infinite phase shifter. 260E is the duophonic pitch class generator. Oh, that's right. He did that because it's close to the oscillator numbers. That's why he did that. Anyway, um, so, you know, Don had a, there was a, re, a, a rhyme to the, how he how he numbered his stuff i mean so the so that barber pole got a number close to the 259 for that reason because it's a it's another pitch generating device it's another oscillator basically and mm-hmm. so uh and then he would put the, the the phase shifter up up you know with the up in the filter category or something or what i don't know what else lives up there but anyway so he sends this thing over and it's wrong it's not what i'm asking for it's it's a it's a shepherd's tone generator and that's not what I needed. I didn't need this constantly shifting barber pole effect tone. I wanted a phase shifting device, an, an effect. And I called him up. And I said, this is fantastic. I love the sound of this thing, but it's not what I asked for. <laughs> you know. And uh, he said, well, what did you mean? And I told him. And he goes, oh, no, I thought you meant this. And, and he, you know, and of course, in you know, usual fashion, he went off to town with this whole, you know, dual pitch class evolution thing and shepherd's theories and all this stuff about all this. And, you know, he, I mean, he does, he dives deep, you know. And um, so he said, well, okay, well, that's easier, you know. So the next thing you know, he comes out with the, with the barber pole phase shifter. And, the reason it says Dave's Barbershop on it is because he always gave me a hard time because he has a full head of hair and I'm bald. <laughs> and he thought it was funny. And he also, I don't like to be called Dave. I don't like to be called Dave. I like to be called David. So, you know, he couldn't resist that either, you know. So he called it Dave's Barbershop. <laughs> so anyway, there That's you go. That's amazing. You know, I, I don't know how popular they were. I don't know how many of me sold. I got no idea. He had a hard time finding those displays after a while. So that's why you see some of the uh, barber poles that have just a straight line of LEDs that go, you know, up and down vertical mounting of LEDs without that barber pole. Yeah. Uh, more thing that he did earlier. Yep. Yeah. And the I actually just... Uh, an, a listener sent us over the uh, 260E to um, to check out, which, I mean, I've only heard like, you know, uh, a couple seconds of one of one, one time. And uh, how did you, I mean, did you end up using it in compositions and stuff or? No, I've, I've never used it. For <laughs> I've never used it for anything. No, I mean, it's cool. I mean, it really, it's, it's a, um, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I used to be somewhat more this way, but I'm not really that interested in um, the aleatoric method with modular synthesis. I d- doesn't really. I mean, you know, I'm I'm all for you know cool chaotic things happening, and you know, and then you record it, you know, and you say, well, that was a that was a nice moment, yeah. but um, I just like it to be a little bit more deterministic than that, you know. I'm 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 not I'm not one of these people that sits around and prays for the the happy accident. 
I had read a or I'd seen an interview um on YouTube and you kind of were talking about, you know, getting to know Don, like what the um what the really interesting piece was was to kind of get to know what his intentions were behind things um when he was, you know, developing the instruments and modules. And like is there anything specific that you can recall that kind of surprised you? Surprising about his what he designed or about him and his intention for the design or yeah, what I guess in, in like maybe like in regards to his modules and stuff, there's just there's some stuff like we, you know, we'll pour over these modules and we'll just kind of come to points and be like, wow, you know, like why did he put this here or why did he implement this like this thing in this way? And, you know, we don't we aren't able to ask him. And so um yeah, I'm just wondering like, you know, when you got to know him, if you kind of if you got to talk about, you know, choices he made or specific things that he did, why he did them in in these uh, modular systems. Well, I think he, I think he he wanted to give you as much of his own insight into what you told him you needed as possible. Because he would never assume that a composer or a performer knew more than he did about the technology that might be available to solve their problem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when it, I mean, all the way back to Mills and the first Buchla, I mean, you know, here's Pauline and, and Ramon and, you know, and Mort and everybody, you know, saying, well, we need this. I mean, we're tired of cutting up little pieces of tape a la Pierre, uh, you know, Schaeffer or Henri, Mm -hmm. you know, the Pierres, (laughs) you know, uh, we don't want to cut up tape anymore to make concrete compositions. We want to, we want to have more control over the timing of these sequences of, of these events that happen. Um, you know, we, and, you know, we, we love the whole idea of found sound and using it as, you know, as a, as a sonic palette to do, to make music, but, uh, we'd like a little more control over it. You know, we'd like to be able to get in there in a more granular way and, and, uh, express things with more determinism. And that means more control and more control means, you know, uh, a good understanding of, of ergonomics and how humans confront the panel, you know, like, like there's a lot of similarities with him and John Stevens, of Steven's tape machine uh, lore, you know, and, and Bob, I mean, all those guys worked in science field. Don worked for NASA for a while Mm -hmm. too. You know, he was part of those programs and, 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 and that was specifically, you know, his big interest was ergonomics. It wasn't the electronics. They had that nailed, you know, he was, he was like, you know, the ergonomics thing, which is why eventually, you know, at the, at the NAMM show in 1999, when we hosted this huge collection of instruments in the lobby at LA Convention Center, here's Don and Bob Moog talking about talking to hundreds of people standing there asking him questions, which was hilarious. It's the time when somebody in the crowd said, "Hey, would you guys settle this once and for all? Who was the first to do to you know come up with and execute modular synthesis as we know it?" 
And Don's kind of looking at his feet. He's, you know, he's embarrassed by this. And, you know, he didn't like that kind of stuff, really. And, and Bob just piped up and said, Don was there before we were. He said, Don beat us by about nine months. And that was in front of hundreds of people at the NAM convention, you know. And so it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a pretty cool moment. But anyway, um, I think that uh, both of those guys, you know, were just there to answer our questions. You know, how can we, you know, move forward? Well, Bob said at that convention, he said again publicly in front of all those people that he thought that, that uh, sound was going to become commodified, you know, which it was, you know, I mean, you can buy Buchla sounds all day long on the internet, you know, and Moog sounds and sample libraries and blah, blah, blah. So much so that we don't even care anymore about it. And, and Don said, well, you know, that's why I'm concentrating on controllers. Yeah. You know? And so he did that's, and he, he bailed on the whole synthesizer thing, you know, after the 700 and said, I'm going after the controller thing, you know. I mean, he thought that you know he had a huge amount of respect for Hugh Lacane and the electronic sack butt because it had these gestural controls built into it, uh, you know. And likewise with the Owen Martineau mm-hmm. and the theremin, you know. Uh, these are these instruments are strong. We're building Owen Martineaus today because the gestural control of a vibrato sensing keyboard and the ribbon on the ring on a ribbon for for pitch, uh, pitch control, you know, those are, those are great grand ways for a human being to express themselves, you know, and when you take a Buchla synthesizer and you interface it with a lightning, you know, if you can get that interface to work reliably, great things happen, you know, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. So when he designed the lightning, the thunder, you know, which was lots of fun to play uh, with Lynx, you know, Lynx Crow again, and involved with that a little bit, and uh, and then there was wind, which was an ocarina kind of an idea, which I had the prototype uh, molds for here. Oh, wow. And uh, the rain and rain was fascinating. I mean, rain, rain was uh, it was a it was a rain stick, but it used instead of, you know, little steel pellets or rice or whatever that you would find in a rain stick, a traditional rain stick. It had these little granules that, um, and this is, he he never built this, by the way, this was a proposed idea for rain. This was never prototyped, but the idea was each of these granules would have its own radio frequency. And as they went through the stick, through the various baffles of the stick, that there would be sensors along this whole thing. He was really big into radio control. That was his thing. Um, you know, just, which is the, the Lumina, you know, as well. And, uh, so the idea was as these granules would go through the stick, you would have the, the somewhat chaotic, but yet gesturally controlled, uh, information that came from this thing to do whatever you wanted to do with in your synthesizer. So, you know, I mean, th- that's, a, that's the kind of stuff that rolled that guy out of bed every day, that and tennis, you know, <laughs> to go play a game of tennis with Suzanne was like his favorite thing in the world to do. He was a horrible tennis player, but, you know, good, good, a good amateur, you know, but he would go play. You know, I watched him and Suzanne play tennis once and it was, it was very entertaining, you know, but, <laughs> but, you know, he, he loved to answer, answer these questions that, that uh, users had, you know, if he liked what you did musically, especially, 
Um, he would he would move heaven and earth to you know come up with something that would help you get your job done. You know, like my first experience with him being such a gruff, you know, sort of taciturn kind of guy. Yeah, but you know, I mean, he'd been through the wars. I mean, you know, I I know how he feels. I get calls at three a.m. from some guy in Budapest wanting to know how to adjust a Mellotron pinch roller. You know, I mean, I don't I don't want to talk about that anymore. Yeah. You know, and neither did Don. You know, he's 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 like been there, done that. What's next, people? Yeah. You know, I've already done a manual for the Lightning. Uh, follow the manual and don't bother me because I'm trying to build this thing for this guy over here in New York that needs something cool that's new. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I think that's that's it. I mean, when it comes to modules, to more specifically answer your question, um. If you have an idea or, you know, he comes up with an idea for a module, like say like, like the 249, for example, you know, like um, Suzanne's asking for a new Marf, you know, and I'm asking for, you know, uh, a, a new 246, you know, uh, more compact because I love sequencers, but this thing's huge. Um, you know, what, or was it, yeah, it was 246 was the hardware sequencer, wasn't it? Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. I think mm-hmm. that's right. Anyway. Yeah, you got it. So, uh, so the 246 you know, was enormous, you know, the big one. And, uh, you know, so he comes up with the, with the 249 and the 250. And the, I, I think they're brilliant, but, you know, he made some assumptions about what we wanted that with the 249 really didn't nail it for me because, you know, what, what happened with the 200E stuff that I felt was a little bit disappointing, uh, is that it's not immediate enough for me. Like I, I'm a knobs and dials kinds of guy, you know, and it's some to get in there and to adjust a filter with a tiny little display. It's like looking at a mountain through a peephole, you know, I mean, it's just really hard <laughs> to, uh, for me to on the fly as a, as a performer use that instrument in some ways, because I've got to have so much of it sort of, dogmatically laid out, you know, for myself already, you know, and patches already written and, yeah. you know, and then I can go to it. But one of the, one of the actual, one of the big uh, successes about all this, as far as I'm concerned, is the radio module. What's that? Is that 247? What's, what is that? 247? What's the radio box? Robert got, I think it's a 272. 272. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, yeah. That came from another commission uh, from me uh, about Namjong Pike's compositions in New York in the 60s and 70s, uh, where he would, you know, he would take found sound from radio stations all over the place and use them as a sound source for somewhat aleatoric composition, you know, Um Pre, predetermined or, 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 or determined, I should say, in, in its formatting and in its execution, but found sound as, this, as the subject material, you know. And so I said, you know, could we build like a tuner that be, you know, just like a radio tuner that could give us, that, that, you know, that we could use in the system? And, and, of course, you know, in typical fashion, he makes one that's got four of them, you know, and uh, so you can page through them, uh, you know, pulse through, you know, the various stations, you know, which is really great. Uh, but I, th- I thought that was just an amazing moment, you know, that he came up with this 
this module, and I've used it quite a bit, actually. I guess what I feel most in sort of kind of a conclusive way about my relationship with Don and, and what I observed of his relationship with the music world and the art world, actually, he was a big supporter of the arts. Mm-hmm. He used to trade gear um, for, for artwork. He did that fairly often. Some of the stuff that I ended up with, I think our 700 was Bruce Davis, mm-hmm. who was an Abex painter from the 60s and 70s. He's got stuff in the permit collection at MoMA. And Don turned me on to him one time. He said, hey, you're looking for a 700. This guy has one. He lives up in Taos. You know, I used to trade him gear for, you know, for paintings. And those paintings were worth a fortune, you know. So, I mean, Don is, you know, kind of working all that stuff. But anyway, you know, in the sort of in the final analysis, I mean, I just think that um, it can't be overstated how prescient he was and insightful he was about what musicians needed out of him and his time on this earth mm-hmm. as you know for musical instruments and and uh i think he did a brilliant job of all that i mean you know he anticipated our needs at this in a, in in a contemporary way that um with the technology that was available at the time you know so like i said before you know something some new tech jumped out like the thinker toys computer came out he's immediately like okay so now i can get digital control of analog circuits which hooray you know we do that in the ondia i mean that's what we do it's it's it's, and he was one of the first cats to do that you know Mm -hmm. for musicians and um i mean you can go back to you know ticker tape type programming or whatever you want to call it in the rca stuff and you know there's been some early programming attempts before dawn but i mean he was really the guy that kind of jumped in there um, to give us some digital control analog. And, and he loved he loved the sound of analog circuits. He had very, very specific, scientific, you know, empirical method-born reasons why he appreciated the analog signal path, you know. And but he but he he felt that it was a little too gooey, uh, a little too messy for the kinds of exacting uh composition intent that some people may have. Mm-hmm. Lots of them didn't. Lots of them couldn't care less about that sort of thing, but some of them did. You know, you listen to to Mort's work or, you know, or Alan Strange, that's there's not much accidental going on there. I know for a fact, you know, there is some, but not much. And so I think that he, you know, got in there with that. But at the same time, it seems almost it seems almost like kind of a um, an, an antithesis or, you know, um, like he wasn't believing his own gospel when he did something like the 265. I mean, you know, here's the source of uncertainty injected into this world of sort of dogmatic, didactic, control freak, you know, <laughs> audio processing that he was doing with the 200 and the 300, et cetera, you know? Yeah. So, you know, so it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, you know, he, he does, we have the 200, it's pretty successful, you know, comparatively. And uh, then the Thinker Toys thing happens, and he designs new boards to go into a, what the original prototype for the 300 was a 200 rack, you know, folding case, you know, system yeah. that just had 300 interfacing, had this digital interfacing available that with, you know, early D to A's, you know. And uh, so he, 
so you know he jumps in there on that but at the same time he's also thinking very much in terms of the 265 source of uncertainty he wants to give us a chance to sabotage our own uh religious nature about sound production you know yeah he wants to give us a way to uh you know it's kind of like a painter that has you know various shades of mauve and piccadilly you know whatever i mean he's got these various shades of of, of paint uh that can be a, an accident you know that can be just happenstance but what the painter does with the brush when he puts it to the canvas is a celebration of his creative intention you know what he does with that that color of blue that he has that day and that's the way i look at the bukla stuff you know he wanted to give us a way to change things up in a non-deterministic way with you know like things like the 265 and with gesture you know that's why he jumped on the on the lightning and all that stuff so hard and heavy that's why he hated keyboards. I've had both the Bukla keyboards that he made, and they're horrible. They're too stiff, you know, I, you know, whatever. And it just felt like, you know, it felt hypocritical to me to even try and play one of those things with the Bukla system because, I'm like, I've got Moogs. I've got spring-loaded, you know, keyboards. I don't I don't need another one of these things. With the Bukla touch plates, you've got, you know, this gesture available to you, you know, capacitance-sensing gesture hello thank you very much <laughs> and so he he was jumping in there with that and and giving us sort of the warm and fuzzies you know uh because sometimes we do fall in love so much with our own cleverness and we need to be kicked in the ass by something that comes from out of nowhere mm -hmm. right and grant richter and i had a long conversation about a, a conversation about this uh, about the time he came out with the first woggle bug I always thought he should call it the wobble bug, but anyway, the woggle <laughs> bug. Uh, but I thought it was really cool what he did, you know. I mean, he extrapolated Don's 265 designs into some other cool stuff, you know, phase lock, you know, and all that stuff that he did. It's really cool, you know. And 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 Grant was, you know, like, man, this thing is this this is the thing, you know. You know, this is we we've got to go down this road some more, you know. I'm like, yeah, yeah, totally, absolutely. But let's let's respect it and not turn it into the composer, you know, because yeah. I don't think that was its intention. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, I don't. There's never a patch where I'm not using that. Where it's just like, yeah, it's balancing my like. This patch has to sound this certain way to like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Throw me off balance a bit. What do you do, Robert? The first time you saw one, what entered your mind about it? About the two sixty six or. 265, oh, 265, 266, yeah. 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 The, uh, my introduction to that was through the Sputnik modular West Coast random source module, which is a uh -huh. Roman's um, clone, I guess, of the version. rack version of the 266. Okay. And the concept of randomness, so as a software engineer, random in, uh, in computers isn't, it's not really possible. So I was like, okay, right. you know, what's, what's really random here? But as I explored it a bit, it, the, the meaning of random isn't so much the seed, the source of the randomness, but the outcome of the randomness, because yeah. it's not your, it's your expectations are randomized. Right. So that was kind of a moment where I thought everybody patches that to pitch 
you know, beep, yeah. beep, 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 <laughs> kind of, a, and that's yeah. really, really boring. I think, um, yeah. after the first time. So yeah, the, totally. when I got into the fluctuating random and yeah. started to get modulations that were like envelopes, but were a little bit, or LFOs that were out of control and, uh-huh. uh, and more unpredictable than a sample and hold. Yeah. Then I, I started realizing that there were small modulations that I could make using that, that would alter the, that basically add a lot of uh, flavor to something like a, a sequence, an eight step sequence, mm-hmm. where normally I have to turn a bunch of knobs on that. But right. looking at the UI of the 265 and 266, and even the name, you know, source of uncertainty and mm-hmm. fluctuating random voltage, stored voltage, mm-hmm. quantized voltage. And I thought sample, sample, and, hold, sample and hold. Yeah. And I thought, aren't yeah. they all sample and hold kind of? <laughs> so, yeah. But it, we yeah. did a, a whole episode about it and barely scratched. That was our first episode. We barely, barely scratched the surface. Yeah. Then we did the boat of uncertainty if you. Shows ago, yeah, we boat of uncertainty, yeah, with the two sixty four, two sixty five, and two sixty six. Yeah, we kind of had in the one in the one sixty four. Yeah, so it was like the yeah. whole the whole kind of gamut of uh, of random yeah. that the uh, the guys at the Mems project kind of put together for us to check out. Right on. Yeah, it's it wonder the world is a black hole to just open up and swallow you both. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's uh, so, that's what so we were damn much for. chaos in one spot. You know, Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, that was a good time. I sometimes use the 266 like I have a couple of other people in my band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if you think about, I was talking to my, my wife about Tangerine Dream and Jean-Michel Jarre and how JMJ is mm-hmm. one person and Klaus Schultz was one person and they would program sequencers and things and then they both play leads over that. But yeah. in, in Tangerine Dream, you had at various points in time, two, three people, sometimes four. Yeah. Edgar's playing a lead thing, you know, Almonds programming and synthesizers and, and sequencers and they're turning the knobs as they're playing. So it was like yeah. they had six hands to do yeah. all this stuff where I only have two. So I like the right. 266 to do that as if Kyle's in my band and I'm not going to tell and him what to do, but yeah. he's, he's going to figure he it out. He's he actually Christopher Franck on the other yeah. side of the group. Yeah, he's, he wishes he was Chris Franck of it. So he's over there, you know, and I'm not going to give him an order. Hey, turn that filter up. He's going to yeah. going to do that. And based I, doubt on the that I, I doubt that, uh, I doubt that, uh, you know, that Peter or, you know, or any of those guys would look at each other. I mean, maybe they had visual clues. I never saw them, uh, live a ricochet. I wore out Rubicon. I oh, wore man. out Phaedra. Yeah. I wore out, you know, All the I love works. those records, but, but I, I, I don't, I, I wonder if there was, I wonder how much of it was just, you know, uh, bring the fader up when you're done programming that patch into the house mix. You know what I mean? Was because Edgar looked at me funny. I, I kept it a little lower than normal. whatever, you yeah. know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what I always thought was hilarious is, well, I mean, Froze is a interesting guitar player. He's not my favorite guitar player of all time. He's kind of like a watered down trip, you know, or something. But, yeah. That's a good but, he, but yeah, but he, you know, but I love the fact that they, that they used a Mellotron because, I mean, not only did they use the Mellotron, they abused the Mellotron because I've got a master tapes, uh, Mellotron master tapes from those years that were made at the Mellotron factory for uh, for uh, Froze's um, Mellotron that are sequences and 
As a matter of fact, you can buy them. You can buy them, buy them now. We, mm. We've got them on a card. You know, Marcus is selling a card. I don't know which card number it is that's got all the Tangerine Dream stuff on it. Uh, but I'm going to have to there's find a that bunch. out. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of it on there, and those tapes were fun to listen to. But I'm listening to it all, and I'm kind of going, oh, so, you know, he's playing tapes. You know, he's he's got some tape going on up there on stage, <laughs> yeah. you know, at that big concert in Paris, you know. Which which is kind of cool, but anyway, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, but I get I get you totally. I mean, I I just I think that um, you know it's I mean it does for me that you know, that whole concept does two things. One is you know it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the oblique strategy card from Eno. You yeah. know, you're in a session and you know you could do this or you could do that. And you're kind of torn. You don't know. You pick an oblique strategy card and it says. Honor the last mistake is hidden intention. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, sure. You know, so you get on the talk back and you tell the guitar player to do what he just did again, but mean it this time, kind of thing, whatever. And then off you go. I think sometimes the source of uncertainty stuff um, does that. I think it kicks you, you know, in the can in a way that you might not have normally thought of. Like, wow, that is a great idea to filter that thing a little bit differently. And then you can do it purposefully, or you can let it have another whack at doing it for you, you know, or whatever. And compositionally, you know, same kind of thing. Um, but uh, anyway, and also, you know, I, I love the fact that it reflects Don's humor. <laughs> you know, calling it the source of uncertainty is like the most Don Buchla thing ever said. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. You know. Yeah, we have to make a lot of guesses about things, too. You know, even, mm. even the names of, of stuff. So the source of uncertainty has a story behind it. And the the names of various modules are so matter of fact, like programmable complex waveform generator. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. what it is, right? And it's multiple, yeah. multiple arbitrary function generator. And so for yeah. me, like those names make a lot of sense because they map to computers of that era, like the IBM yes. 2401 magnetic tape drive. Yeah. And nowadays, so we don't really have Don to tell us what word in programmable complex waveform generator we should emphasize. So, for example, uh -huh. people call that a complex oscillator, thinking that the module is complex, but uh -huh. it's the waveform that's complex, not the yeah. generator. Yeah. And then the arbitrary function generator is arbitrary function is something specific. It's yeah. not arbitrarily making functions. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it's taking, taking your arbitrary input, turning it into a function. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so that, uh, yeah. those types of things, and, and I would love to talk about that for hours because that's yeah. kind of what I work on. But um, even yeah. stuff like that, why did you call it the infinite phase shifter and uh -huh. the dual phonic pitch class generator? Well, we can kind of figure that out, you know, because that's what they yeah. do. Yeah. And, yeah. But how did he come up with complex waveform generator? Was he just, was he around computers and he looked at, you know, a deck PDP 11's magnetic tape drive unit and go, hey, that's a great way to name my modules. Yeah. Well, we, you know, he, he knew all that stuff. I mean, when we were, we were uh, working on the McClavier, you know, I had to, I had to pick Don's brain about PDP 11 because we had, we had to figure out brew and how to, how to load this prom and, we had the five meg platter drives. The platters are this big and they weigh 30 pounds. I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous, you know. <laughs> yeah. So he was definitely up in all that stuff. But he was funny 
because he wasn't so proud that he would he would uh, assume that he could do it all. You know, like all these people he's worked with, Fred and Joel and and Links and all these people. He knew when his um, cash couldn't supply what the problem needed. You know, mm-hmm. he he and he didn't have room for any more right now because he's trying to figure out how to get Rogan to charge him less for those damn blue knobs. You know what I mean? <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Yeah. For real, you know, and, and, and so he would hire a guy, you know, he was always hiring programmers and he loved them, but he hated them, you know, and they were just like, they're not really his people. Mm-hmm. Really. They're not. I mean, they're just, you know, programmers and him kind of is always this, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, because, you know, he's, he's the end user dude, you know, he's, He's like, uh, he just want. I'm like that. I mean, when it comes to my stuff with the Ondia, the guy that I work with is a guy here in town named Dale Eulen, who's the, probably the smartest person I've ever met, bar none. And he and, he and I have done all these projects together, the Helio stuff, the compressors, you know, on and on and on and on. And so, you know, I'm like, you know, we need to figure out how to delta the ribbon for MIDI. Like, are we going to delta that for your position when you press the touche or, you know, and, and we would talk about it. And then it was like Picard, you know, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is, what did he used to say on Star Trek? Uh, let it be done or something like that. Make it so. Make it so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Make it so Dale. So Dale Dale goes off, you know, and he, he does a brilliant job of programming. So all the stuff in the Ondia comes to software. That's Dale. That's his architecture. That's his mm-hmm. that's his design work. And it's genius. It's just brilliant what he does with that. But Don D- Dale and I get along great. Don, you know, he wants the moon. I mean, you know, and when it came to the especially the gestural controllers, you know, gee whiz, Thunder, I think just about broke everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, Thunder was just brutal. Because we're trying, we got a Z80. <laughs> you know, you know, we're trying to cram all this code in, you know, and why? You know, and and Links is like, we got to do this in assembler because we don't have any room to spare, and you know, and so there's no there's no C plus plus going on in that baby. You know, when, I mean, when did you start working on the Thunder? About what what era? Late eighties, early nineties? Oh man, yeah, I'm I'm like I'm like early eighties. Early, okay, that explains the Z eighty then, because. Yeah, lot, yeah, because better choices uh, later. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I, and that's why he got so excited with the seven hundred when Intel came out with that video driver. Yeah. It was like suddenly, you know, there was there's all this he could do nested, uh, nested interfacing. You know, he could you have a window pop up for this yeah. at the same time you could hit you know a control key and have the envelope window come up. And he yeah. thought that was just yeah the overlapping best windows. Thing ever. That was that yeah. was really hard to do back then. Um, obviously yeah, because it doesn't work with a damn <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean it kind of works a little bit but but again that's one of the ones that has all that debug code stuffed in it so it, i mean i don't know anyway um yeah he was he was hard on programmers you know and and he even though he was normally kind of a strange combination of mellow chilled out hippie dude but at the same time over super geeky techno boy you know, he was basically just a really good, empathetic human being, but he was under so much pressure to do better than Don Buchla last year did mm-hmm. that he would get, he would step right into 
this new stuff. And and guys like Links would just would say, or Joel would say, Hey man, did you hear about this thing? You know, like we could look what we could do with this. And and that was like, you know, a shiny object in front of a crow with him. You know, he'd be like, Yeah, what <laughs> how, how does it work? You know, oh, how many lines do we, we we got eight lines with that one? Like eight control lines. Well, sign me up, you know. So the next thing you know, they're they're jumping on this new processor, you know. But it was hard. It was hard on folks. And I think that's lots of times the reason why people would, when they call him, like I did that day, you know, you get him on the bad day and it's like, he's the biggest prick you ever met in your life. Yeah. You I know, heard him hang up on people a lot. Hung up on me the first time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw him do it. Lots of stories oh. of that. Calling and yeah. asking about a module being available and oh, yeah. hang up on oh, the yeah. person. <laughs> yeah. He, he, I mean, that's the thing. He's just like, there's only so much bandwidth available. Boopla bandwidth, you know, how much is there today? Yeah. Usually tons, you know, maybe a little less than you had yesterday. So walk a little quieter or whatever. But <laughs> I saw him go off on people in the in the in the factory, as they call it. the factory was the second floor of the Curtis house. You were Joel and Yossi and you know, for a very brief period of time, Rick Smith would be, you know, sovereign banana jacks in the panels and stuff you know mm. and something would set him off and man hell hath no fury is like and i was just like i want to get the fuck out of here because <laughs> i don't want to be <laughs> i don't want to see him like this i don't want him associating me with this scene you know because i got along with him so well you know and then i just bugged out you know yeah. completely. but anyway so um anyway that's 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 about all I have to say about it, you guys. I mean, I, I just, I miss him like, a, yeah. a, you know, dearly, you know, he, he had this lovely way of speaking of chaos of just popping in three o'clock in the morning, might call me or whatever, yeah. just, you know, and just, uh, it was kind of like a chakra alignment moment. You know, he would call and we'd talk about something and, you know, <laughs> but anyway, we're, yeah. we're really richer in a, a bunch of ways for having him in our lives. And, and I miss the guy a bunch. And, and I think what you're doing and those Mims cats, I, I really, I really like what they're doing up there. I'm going to help those guys. Uh, I went through the old files last night. I found the only extant copy of the 500 manual wow. back here in the files. I forgot I'd had it, you know, but um, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the problem, but uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah. but I'm going to help those guys out because I, I love their, their intention, what they're talking about doing. You know, I'm sure that Joel and his crew and all those guys are going to do great things with the company. And I'm, I'm glad that they're dragging the same spice rack out to do their cooking, you know, more or less. But, <laughs> but what, what, Can't go wrong what, what the Mims, yeah, yeah, some cayenne going here. But the, but the Mims guys seem to have a really honest and uh, well entrenched sort of idea about this that really agree, uh, appeals to me a lot, you know? Yeah. So, uh, Anyway, but thanks for doing such a good job, you guys. Thanks for, uh, yeah, spending all this time uh, with this. It's, you know, like I've mentioned before, it's sometimes hard to track down people that knew Don so well. And so it's great to get um, somebody's insight that spent a lot of time with them. So, the uh, the Buchla Duophonic Pitch Class Generator Model 260E. And you know, there's a 260 also. 
Yeah. Essentially the same module. Which is what, yeah, Dave's first, or sorry, David's uh, first version of yeah. this was. Um, Can't help calling him Dave with that. I know. That's what... <laughs> like, David. Yeah. And uh, I thought, so quick funny story before we talk about the module. Because the 260 had Rogan's, Mm-hmm. And then the 260E was demonstrated at NAM 2016 or something. I thought the 260 was a vintage module. Like, mm. I thought that Barry Schrader had used it, you know, like I've mentioned on yeah. this. But of course it's not. It was one of the first new 200 series modules. This is a, the 260 and the 297 were 200 series modules. Yeah. And the 260E is a 200E series module. And they were made around the same time. So craziness, but... Uh, yeah, I wonder That's where we are. Yeah. It's a crazy module. So <laughs> that it is. I um I, you had this at one point and we're we're borrowing this one. Um and yeah, this one always perplexed me because there's that one video at NAM that showed it off for about fourteen seconds or so. Yeah. Um and I was just like, wow, that just sounds like circus music is how yeah, I it does. It does. <laughs> Would always describe it, but I'm like, okay, let's, uh, you know, let's get a little bit more background information, um, on it since we, you know, you just heard us talking with David and, yeah. um, and how this module in a way was just a mistake or that's how we, yeah. Um, and it's, I think it maybe the code is incomplete and, just in gen- uh, yeah, the general it came out in 2004. I want to say it was when the 260 was, I, I might have the date wrong, but. It was around that time, um, but the code in it is is strange. And and I have another quick funny story about that the two sixty e. Do you remember I I met you Kyle at that music thing in in mm-hmm. Seattle all those years Patrick's ago. Patrick's event, yeah, yeah, that thing. That was a long time ago. And um, the the person that demonstrated this at Nam, I forgot their name now. Uh, uh, but, uh, Felix. Felix, yes, thank you. They were at the show, at the, at the show where you were. And I went over to their system and I was like, whoa, a 260E. I saw that in a video about Nam. <laughs> and they were like, And they go, was... yeah, that was, that was me. It's like, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> felt like a total tool, but he was, they were pretty nice about it. So yeah, I, I looked for one and then I bought mine from the CTO of Red Hat who had two 24U systems that yeah. Don had built for him forever ago. And now uh, I think Alex Plinger of of Keenan Associates. That's right. That's yours. Yeah. And, and what's interesting to note is this one, uh, this was shipped with the, you know, if you're buying the starter. Um, yeah. Like the 18 and the 24. Uh, yeah. 200 E system. This was the only other like tone generating uh, module because they didn't have the 261 E yet. That's right. They had the 259E twisted waveform or complex waveform generator, which changed its name to twisted, twisted later. later. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um, which was like a 259 sort of that had been digitally altered. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, crazy. it's hard to go back that long ago and <laughs> try to remember everything that we've learned. But this module, if you can think about buying one of these booklet systems in 2008, 2009, when they were they were still really expensive, put together by Don and some folks down in Oregon, shows up at your doorstep, and you have the 260E in it. <laughs> now, probably at the time, 
would think, you know, this whole thing is crazy. This whole thing yeah. is nutty. Yeah. So the 260E makes a lot of sense um, in some regard. But now as we've sort of standardized and methodized how we use Buchla systems and so on, it, it stands out as a bit of an odd duck. Yeah. So and, let's, um, I mean, let's let yeah, what's it people... Do? Yeah, here, let's let let's just uh, turn it on for a second. And that's it. Thanks that's for it. listening and we'll see you. <laughs> so it is a pitch class generator, which means that um, a pitch class is all of the is one note in all perceivable octaves. So as Kyle turns the potentiometer from A to A. There's A. There's the low A that's on the um and uh, you're hearing, on the panel. But you're hearing all of the A's. Yeah. You know, um in a in a range. This I think this does a, a range of octaves because as you turn the pot and you go up to Yeah. So it's up toward D and then E and F and G and it comes back around to A again. And it's and, and, and we're it, back where we started. We're back where we started, yeah. So there are two of those, and what do you do with the pitch class generator? Well, we're going to show some interesting things, you know, but I think what makes this module so interesting to folks is the bottom section, the Escher's Barbershop. Yeah. And that is a really fascinating thing that um, I'm thinking, do I want to jump into that without providing any more context? Let me, let's talk about briefly, Kyle, the mm -hmm. difference between the 260 and the 297 because they both have barber poles on them. And we, in the 297 show, we talk about something that we have found out is kind of teasingly named Dave's Barbershop. And it does a barber pole phasing. So, and we explained that in the 297. So it, it seems like it's forever rising in its Yeah, the phase shifting its phase is ever shifting. going up or going down. Yes. The 260 does a barber pole uh, of the pitch classes. So it, it lets you do the shepherd tone, the shepherd Rousset glissando, the tritone paradox, and some other interesting auditory illusions. So while they came out at the same time, and one was, I'm gonna say, stillborn, <laughs> <laughs> and the other went on to great success, because the 297, and folks get them confused. I got them confused at first. I bought a 297 expecting to get the shepherd tone out of it. Yeah. But they are very, very different. Yeah, and also one thing to note too, um, if you're watching this uh, video uh, through Patreon or YouTube, um, you you can see the 297 right next to it, and and David kind of mentioned this that at certain points they're having trouble finding um, uh, the multiple LED um, setup for the barber pole that's we're seeing on the 297, and he and like he mentioned. Um, Sometimes he just had to do this LED one, so I think there's different versions. Yeah, the 260 of... has the the, yeah. the nice 297 style one, mm -hmm. the 260 with the Rogans on it, which is funny because that barber pole indicator is essential on yeah. the 260, yeah, and not really that useful on the 297. I mean, it's useful, but like you could have just had the line of LEDs yeah. on the 297 and been fine. But when we're using the 260E, as you'll if you look if you're watching the video later. It just is a vertical line of eight LEDs that just, that kind of remind me of the Altair 8800 
vintage computer where you programmed it with the switches on the front. You know, what do those LEDs mean? Mm-hmm. But the um, the barber pole indicator would have been much much more useful, as people will realize as we start messing with that shepherd yeah. tone thing. So the, my favorite thing about it is also the thing I hate about it the most, which is the equalizer section. And I love it because you can get some incredible drones out of this thing. But I hate it because it's not under voltage control <laughs> and it's not under preset management. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it has the white tops yes. on the knobs. So let's do that. We'll kind of work our way like top down from this. Yeah. So This will um, be a mostly listening one, won't it? We'll just mess around with all the different sounds. <laughs> yeah, so I'm bringing back up. Um, so this there are two. So let's actually um, pitch them slightly off. So we'll have them, they're not really detuned because they're independent oscillators and, or tone generators and they have uh, different pitch classes. So they're technically not detuned because you don't tune the pitch classes together. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can, you, yeah. You can, but I mean, like, um, music mathematically speaking. Yeah. And There's a lot of jitter too because the code is, I mean, what are these one bit resolution <laughs> DACs and these things? Yeah. Um, let's. You can definitely hear that in that kind of jitter. Yeah, we're, Sometimes we're, you just knock around. Yeah. And that'll maybe knock into some more jitter. Or breathe hard on it. Yeah. That so th- that's where you can start to hear the formation of a drone. Like, now I'm going to do my favorite thing and turn down so these, um, equalizers. These, and- these equalizers, they're boost and cut. So why don't you cut everything? So yeah, straight I'll cut, up, I'll cut everything. they're like at zero. But if you turn them to the left, uh, they cut the frequencies. Now Robert's going to go. So um, on the first one, which is boosting... 150? Yeah, 150 or below or something like and that. And then 500. That's mid. and then Or unison, I guess. And then... So now you've got the makings of an organ. Yeah. Like, these are almost like draw bars, in a sense. We're shaping the organ sound. Hear that? It's like clicky, yeah. And that's just, I think it's just overloading, too, the... Yeah. Turn that down slightly. Then I'm bringing them all up. I don't even have, uh... Ooh. Ooh. Okay, what a great sound. <laughs> let's turn the low-pass uh, gate uh, up and down. Yeah, so let, let's uh, bring up the volume of just one of them. Okay, we'll do the A. Yeah, and then I'm going to put the cut. I'm going to add and boost the 150 and boost 500. And this is something I was telling Kyle about before I came over or when I got over, went over here. I like to use a chorus with this. So this, re- this will come through, right? The yeah. Chorus? Okay. So this is a really fast chorus. We'll turn the chorus down. So with this, you can get like a really neat, kind of a wobbly, Mm -hmm. um, sort of Boards of Canada type drone thing going on, which I really like, but then what? (laughs) <laughs> that indeed so what's interesting you know as we're we kind of showed off um you know the the knob starts at a and goes to a and so 
it's just a weird kind of thing to process because if you think like oh if i'm going to sequence a um an oscillator you might jump around you know two maybe three octaves or yeah. like you know yeah i want to go below so if i start at c3 and i want to drop down to you know d2 to add some some you know bass or sub sub sound into there but you can't do that on this it's already there it's already it's there. already because yeah, it's all of the oct all of the notes in that and all of the octaves all yeah. the perceivable octaves which is really hard to wrap one's head around <laughs> so yeah if we like you know we can add some pitch information we'll let's have a kind of random uh sequencer thing going from if anybody listen or watches syriac's videos on youtube this sounds just like the music that Syriac uses for his crazy surrealism. Mm. So yeah, we have this cranked up all the way um, for on the input. Um, I mean, I guess I can just like start at A because um, it's going to go up to A. Um, I'm going to bypass the chorus for this, okay? Yeah. So you hear it better. So you have, what's the pitch class at? Roughly D sharp? Yeah. Or E flat? And then I'm okay. going opposite ways. Like, um, there is like, also to note, this has like a, a center indentation on its knobs, which not, um, I don't know if all of them do. Um, do they on the 200D? Yes. Oh. Well, no, you can't say all of them. A lot yeah. of them do. A lot of them do, but not all of them gotcha. do. Like the 251E's um, master pitch multiplier thing does not, mm -hmm. but the um, some, a lot of the other ones do. Isn't it weird how when you turn that pot for the CV input, it adds a bunch and then it all disappears when you <laughs> go to full? Yeah. Kind of like t turning it up to A. <laughs> Bring in that second drone turn my chorus back on yeah it sounds good with that yeah that bass yeah Boosted. the bass is just just great Yeah, that, um, it's not really an, it's not an oscillator per se. I mean, it has oscillators in it, but yeah, it, it's, like, it's not a waveform generator the way the yeah. 259 or 258. I guess what we haven't kind of mentioned too, it's, they're all, um, I mean, these are all sine waves. Yes. Um, so there's not a lot of harmonic content in them. So, you know, I ran them through like the spectral, uh, grammar spectral processor model 296, the one that we featured on the last episode. And there's just not, um, you can kind of use the like uh, the attenuator sliders to um, just pull out like some of the like actual yeah. octaves, um, which is kind of neat. But you know, going through like the program control to kind of sweep it around like a bandpass filter, it's not yeah. Yeah. that. Um, I don't know. It's it's not worth showing here because it's just there's not enough harmonics for it to right. grab on. Not coming out of the 260 by itself. No. But if you run it through all, you know, 285, 291, 277, et cetera, et cetera, and you add in 
harmonics. Sure. But mm-hmm. then you're not really talking about a 260 anymore. <laughs> well, but talking I mean, about an entire booklet system. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and that's where, I mean, where, you know, ideally everything kind of, uh, you know, putting into a si- system will exponentially, right. Um, you know, further what you can do with your system. Um, I kind of find it a little bit limiting in that there's, which is interesting, you know, and I, I think about it as an oscillator, but I like know that I shouldn't, but there's only one output per oscillator, which, you know, most every oscillator, there's multiple. There's one output per pitch class generator. Yeah. An oscillator is inside the pitch class generator. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. To create sure. the, okay. yeah. Yeah. It's an important distinction. Yeah. But one one audio output yes. per pitch class generator where just about everything else has two. Has two or yeah. multiple. Um, you know, so it's like if I want to try and like frequency modulate one with the other, um, you know, on a two fifty eight, yeah. you can do that but still run it, you know, still have multiple audio outputs to hear what that um modulating oscillator is doing. Right. Um Yeah, like each section seems like it should have two. Mm-hmm. outputs because oscillator a and the 259 has two oscillator b does as well it's duophonic pitch class generator two pitch class generators each with one output so that is kind of where it feels like yeah i can't cross modulate them yeah and i find like there's more um uh you know as we'll kind of keep going like um running this through other <laughs> other audio processing yeah. modules is like is can be helpful it's also cool cool as a a way to provide fm modulation of other things too because especially you know um you don't get the shepherd tone generator from the top as a wait no you, you get the audio from the shepherd tone generator and you can use that to yeah. fm something else we'll show it it's uh, it's it's, an, it's a little underwhelming <laughs> well yeah um i've never seen kyle with such a stern look on his face about a module <laughs> <laughs> um just to show off real quick um here i can pull out the uh, i think the 225 h 26h utilities module would be more exciting <laughs> for you <laughs> um it is kind of cool to give it because uh, there the is a, a FM audio. Um, is it the speed uh, you want for this? Whatever you know, but there, you can add some vibrato. That's a little drunken. I might go a little. Yeah. But even when we kind of push it up into like. And so, if we turn the pitch class knob. Oh yeah, then... it does have more effect. Yeah, because we had it all the way up at the upper A. We'll so cut out A. those higher harmonics there. Change it to a square wave. Yeah, kind of a mess of sound that you can get just out of the most basic oscillators. I'm going to put all the equalizers back to where they were. Yeah, it's basically a basically a vibrato not not much else at, at this frequency for the modulation oscillator the, the oscillator fming it now what should we if we run the marsh sequence with it i'm going to plug that in before kyle tries to create the patch he's making
that's cool. Yeah, the the square wave square is wave. going slower and kind of you know jumping that sequence around a bit. Um, just to show real quick, we can do the um, F M E B uh, into the A. So let's here we go. Let's maybe turn off the uh, other sequence, yeah. So I have this full up. Yeah, that's some impressive FMing. That there's there. like nothing. Why? Are you. So. I don't know, it's um... just me, just the sign, like. Oh, well, well, no, you should. Hmm. Hmm. Perplexing, right? It is. <laughs> Underwhelming. Yeah, it's you... like I'm changing around the, uh, huh. the frequency but yeah no go hmm. well you know we haven't talked about the bottom section yeah so let's move on this is the 90 percent of the cost of the module is in that <laughs> that bottom that the bottom you know the the escher's barber shop that's how it's labeled we've got dave's barber shop on the 297 and escher's barber shop on the 260 260E. And that makes sense. Well, the Dave part doesn't make sense unless you know the story. But <laughs> which the Escher, we all do. Which we all do, yeah. Should, I'm going to scratch out mine and write David in there. <laughs> but that, um, the Escher's Barbershop, because we're talking about auditory illusions, that's what this thing does on the bottom section. And it's making reference to a lot of MC Escher's drawings where you have staircases that go up forever or go down forever. Mm -hmm. And so with this guy... Kyle, you know, I, I had a 260E, you've heard me record it, it's on seven dot waves and stuff, um, but I didn't really do you know, the equivalent of Hans Zimmer, you know, using it, using the Shepard Tone Paradox for the bat cycle. But what did you think of this? Before we explain what it is, what how it works, like, what did you think of it when you started playing with the 260E? So not the first time I heard it, where right. I thought it was clown music. <laughs> Yeah, but using it yourself, like thinking, I'm gonna put on my dark sparkler hat. I, it's it was kind of like the after the like four minutes of like messing around with it, it was kind of like okay, that's it's just what it is. <laughs> Where I look at so many other modules, like we went over the programmable spectral processor, and we did like. Yeah. nine different it could have been a three-hour show things with it yeah. and um you were sure not not everything is created equal in these uh modules but i don't know i always just am finding like more functional ways to use it and like um yeah it just it's uh it felt limited for for me and not knowing just like where to place that in my own yeah. musical sphere like i kind of just like i get it for for the, like that kind of sound effect thing like sound design like okay i can be into that but there's not enough there to then carry it to yeah. like okay what's what's part b yeah. going to be with with this so when you hear it in lost atlantis you're not really thinking oh that's a shepherd tone paradox unless you're you know really i did because i'm a nerd like that but he very mixed that in with all kinds of other sounds. He also yeah. programmed it himself with 258. And that's the really thing impressive. too. So it's like, that's showing how like using the whole system, like you can get there where this is like, this is, this can get you there a lot right. faster, but how much control do you actually have? Yeah. 
over so it's, that. It's not a starter. It's not a starting point, I think, for a lot of things. And I wouldn't put it in a LEM4. I mean, yeah. four space, you know. <laughs> but when it's used with all the other things in the ecosystem, in a 24U or, or even an 18, and you're using it for its job, you know, for providing certain harmonics or certain sounds, it can be really great. But when it's taken by itself, it feels like a novelty because it kind of is. And it, you know, it's a, it's got some quirks and things, <laughs> um, which I think will be fun to explore. Let me make sure. Yeah, I got chorus off. So, so do you want to explain what the the barbershop does in the octave division and give a demo there? Yeah. So I'm turning both. So you're hearing both um, oscillators right now, you know, and I can pitch these around wherever. But when we hit hit the open button, uh, which in, means opening the barbershop. Yeah. How clever is that? You get, you get kind of a um, Shepard, Rissay, Glissando thing from both op both oscillators, one going down and one going up. I think they're both, like... Yeah, one's A is going down and B is okay. going up. Or they're, they're offset from each other because yes. they're not doing the same. Um, because there is a... Um, if you're watching the LEDs on here, the LEDs are slowly going up and we... Um, so I guess just to map out these controls, um, we have the rate of change, which we have kind of dialed center, which... Um, Minus 30 to 30? Yeah, so yeah. if we go down, it's um, we have semitones per second. So right now it's 30 <laughs> semitones per second. Minus, then, minus 30. Yeah. So going down 30 semitones per second. And then this is... Going up 30 seconds. Uh, um, and then you can do... Um, you're going to overwhelm it, yeah. So the, the other knob, which I don't really know if we actually have... I mean, I guess this is octave. Well, it's 2 to 24. It's not really... The rate of change is semitones per second for... For, oh, for two octaves. So yeah, then for, this is the octave. Yes. A knob, I guess a knob, so you can go... So I have it now set to 2. So yeah. it's right now, it's maybe going 6 octaves. Or, sorry... Every six seconds, it's going two six octaves? Six semitones per second. Yeah. Right? So every second, it's going okay. six semitones okay. in an octave. Yeah. Um, we should explain what the shepherd tone is. That might <laughs> help with it. And now I'm turning this up to, like, 24 now, and we can hear it kind of going much faster. But they, they're interactive, so then it's like, you know, we can go up to um, 18 semitones per second I have this set up at 12 I can then nothing's really changing yeah when I'm I'm not even going to try to explain it I don't know why it probably has something to do with the way those auditory illusions work with the inputs that we're providing to them mm -hmm. as opposed to making sense as an oscillator yeah you know you're not dealing with frequencies you're not dealing with modulation depth you're dealing with the inputs to the math that results in, <laughs> uh, you know, the create the uh, Roger Shepard, who the Shepard tones named after, was a cognitive scientist, mm -hmm. and so the experiment that he did that we, that the Shepard tones all about um, is an auditory illusion, where you have uh, all all of the pitches in a particular set of octaves, the semitones increase by one. And the low semitones are loud and the high semitones are quiet because you are hearing all of the 
mm-hmm. you know, all, all of them across multiple octaves. So as it goes, it sounds like it's forever going up because by the time it gets to the high pitches, the low pitches are almost completely silent or some level of quiet. And then the top ones and the fade top out. ones fade out and the low ones come in again. So it always sounds like it's forever going up, which is let's take out one oscillator. And that's it there. So that's the Shepard, uh, Shepard Rousset Glissando or Shepard Tone Paradox. And then you hear that little click, click because this is computer code. And I think that the resolution of the uh, the thing, making you know the I'm just totally spaced, but the resolution is like two bit or four bit, or there's a problem in the code, because when you created this sound in Ableton, you'll get that tone when your algorithm doesn't have the. It's kind of like a crossfade. Okay. As, yeah. You know, but in this one, it's just repeating that. Like the cycle is like a hard. Yes, because it's um, it's cycling it. or something. Yeah. Whereas on Ableton, you have you know processors and and a memory space where you could have you could generate a Shepard tone that is ten hours long and post it on YouTube, which somebody did. <laughs> um, and so as we bring it up, it you can hear now how the paradox works because it's so fast that your brain isn't being tricked into thinking it's the same sound forever. Mm-hmm. Now, some people say that it's way more pronounced descending. Um, and some people think it's more pronounced ascending, but I guess that's because we're all wired differently. Mm-hmm. And this is the sound that Barry has in Lost Atlantis for, I think, about 10 seconds or so as he's um, bridging between two different sections of the piece. It might be Trinity. I, you know, I get the, I get yeah, a lot confused, yeah. but as he's bridging between two sections and i like to think that he kind of had this going on as he's unplugging patch cables and stuff to get <laughs> to get ready for the yeah so tell us about quantized and eccentric yeah so there's three different um like octave divisions uh sections and so we've been listening to the continuous where it just kind of forever yeah forever going and i can switch a button to go to um quantize we'll speed it up a little bit and i'll give it more now we can hear quarter notes yeah right mm-hmm. it's more of a yeah instead of kind of that's them all kind of gliding together we're hearing you know specific changes in those quarter notes so you can still tell how it sounds like it's forever going up i'm, I'm bringing in the uh the b oscillator too So there you hear both the, well, you hear the shepherd tone paradox, but we took out the Rissé part of the glissando from the, that's in the continuous. Now here's an interesting thing that we didn't mention. There are two pulse outputs. Yeah, so now, um, which they don't fire off in the continuous um, mode. They only fire off in this quantized, um, and let's, you know, let's do Can that. slowing down and spitting up again? It feels like that. I feel like every time I jiggle the table, it like <laughs> these knobs feel very kind of. Or is that sensitive. the illusion? That's right. It could be. Um, 
So now I've got um, um, the A and B pulse outputs going into to uh, uh, quad function generator um, sections on the 281 and then into the low pass gate. And their attack and decays are kind of turned all the way down right now. Um, turn up the decay a little bit, but uh, but yeah, they just alternate, I guess, between. Yep. Just That's like, what they do. Yep. Um, <laughs> and then we'll go to this uh, eccentric, which we learned is um, tritone. Tritone. Perhaps. So yeah. we'll leave it the same settings. We have this kind of knobs, um, the range, rate of change, kind of straight up, and then we'll leave it at around twelve. Do we hear much change? Not with the pulses and stuff. Yeah. Maybe if you take out the the gating. So the tritone paradox, if I recall correctly, is the one where you're hearing a discrete different note, but you hear it as they're, they're, it's playing a discreetly different note mm -hmm. or semitone from what your brain thinks it's playing. If I, if I remember that correctly. Yeah, like right now at this setting that I have it at. Too bad we don't have an oscilloscope or something here. Um, yeah, I feel like it is kind of change. Like every perceived cycle I hear, it feels like like maybe the root of that change or, or like changes for me. The root. <laughs> maybe. So I've turned this second knob down to six. Let me turn the... Hmm, that's fun. Compared to... <laughs> the quarter notes quantized. Yeah, where like this just feels very like... regimented in its... in the tones that we're hearing. Lower, you know, because it's not giving us every single yeah. note. And you can see the LEDs are largely meaningless. You see two LEDs and then two spaces between them. <laughs> Which those don't, I mean, have those changed at I No, I think all? that they're relative. It's always yeah, two. Or, oh, to no, this one. Oh, there, that sounds kind of cool. So if you're programming music for a slot machine... <laughs> Or um, <laughs> the press your luck, you know, new mm -hmm. series, press yep. your luck, no yeah. whammy, no whammy, no whammy, yeah. no whammy, stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no whammy, no whammy, no whammy, stop. <laughs> oh my gosh. We know how they did it now. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, <laughs> the, this guy, let's take this two pulse things out. Let's play around with making, so we, we you know, we've, joked about the sound and stuff but there are some really cool things we can do with it by manipulating the output the audio output with the 297 and the um 258 or 285 and such so you're the patchmeister for your system putting this stuff together but we had some <laughs> really really crazy gritty wild sounds coming out of this earlier when we were um, playing around with it with the 297. Let's see if we can recreate yeah. that. So we'll run this um, 
Let's see here. I think I had, yeah. So let me just choose the lowest one so we don't get jitter. So I'll turn on the phaser. I'm going to cut out the high harmonics. Boost the lower ones. Oh, we had the reverb going earlier when we... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And as we, if you may remember, or not, um, if you haven't listened to the uh, 297 show, um, that input really gets kind of overdriven. And so yeah. boosting those bass frequencies really kind of like can make it pretty grungy. <laughs> that doesn't um, sound good at all. <laughs> uh, one thing we could try doing is um oh yes with the 288 time domain processor yeah this was fun um boost that to 10 stages cut the chorus and actually let's turn on um we were in continuous yeah kind of set that slower um so kind of what we could do is um, record. Um, so now, right now, I have a loop going. So I can here's the recorded. Loop just by itself. And we can pitch that. Mm, down. Or down. And then blend that in with what we had. Change the equalizers back to neutral here. Did the 288 record that distortion? It could have, yes. Like if I. Is it going to put its own kind of click when it um, resets its uh, buffer loop, too? So, are y'all going mad yet? Turn the, on the chorus again. Yeah, turn on the chorus. So that just adds this weird... Except for the clicking sound, you know, which resets it. it it's got kind of a neat... Yeah. Oh, I turned the phaser up way too high. Yeah, it's a good amount of movement in there. Um, 
Oh, the quantize. Oh, the eccentric. Yeah, quicker over eccentric. Just to. That's where it kind of yeah. Yeah, that's it's kind of interesting too with the two eighty eight. Um, play that back over itself. Yep, that's. <laughs> so, can we expect a new double album from Dark Sparkler that is only the two sixty E? Uh, no. Double album, double vinyl. No. Liner notes. Um, you know, it was great to talk with David about this because, uh, I think like, the you know the key thing that he said was like, oh, you know, it was, it was a mistake. It wasn't really what he wanted. And so in my mind, it's it's the module for nobody. Yeah, is how I am kind of thinking of it because it, I'm sure. Um, okay, just like historically, what we kind of even chatted about, um, you know, Don would do a lot for musicians to like make these, uh, you know, help them realize uh, the things that they want to do with their music, and so you know, it started with Mort's and getting the whole 100 series going, and then you know, kept on evolving and so where this was kind of just some cross wires and not really what mm -hmm. david's intention was but don had obviously put a lot of work into it and just wanted to you know follow it through um you know, it wasn't it's, it's cool it's cool but you it's know. like it doesn't have like a um i guess it doesn't have <laughs> i mean this is like why we need you know it'd be great to actually ask don of like what would you do like what's your i wonder if he used it for anything um any of his music um, well i mean you know we're we've been kind of joking around about it because just playing with it the way it comes out and distorting it and stuff is kind of you know it's an island of misfits toy misfit toys kind of thing but really you can use that for organ sounds you know yeah you, you can dial in an organ sound and have that as a drone or have some slight modulation and or have a shepherd tone in one part of your of your music you know, of your song of your piece i think that for us you know looking at the real estate in a like a you have an 18 u here but even in a 24 u you got to make some complex real estate decisions <laughs> yeah you know yes. and the 260e is a is a kind of a tough to make that call compared like, especially if you have something like the Marf in there that's for you, or you know, a bunch of two U stuff like the two two uh two fifty two E and the two ninety six E and the two twenty seven E. There's six right there. Yeah. I mean so where like the... in the two hundred E system, um which it came, you know, I obviously well I, I think of this as more a two hundred E module because it really didn't get released yeah. until then where things got smaller in general, like the um just the the thunder touchpad is really like the biggest thing yeah, three, in the three spaces wide. In the e system, which you can have out of the system anyways. You're only looking at one to two space modules, but yeah, still it's yeah. it's um yeah. I mean, when it came out, there weren't a lot of modules to buy anyway. Yeah, so it was part We're of it. Todd, to... yeah, Todd, I, I talked with uh, Todd Barton. Take a drink, um, and this was in his original system because yeah, that's you know he was early on uh, yeah. adopter of it. Um, now we have too much choice. Now we have so much choice that you do have to make that call about whether you're going to do a 260E or a clone or a MEMS thing or a completely new thing from Keen or from, you know, um, Human Comparator. Like it, it, that trade off gets tough now. Yeah. 
So that becomes like a one trick pony in a sense where you're like, what am I going to have? The-? You had to take out something to put that. Oh, my 251E. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah. So, so. for, uh, <laughs> yeah, for um, lane, you know, yeah. sequencer basically. So that colors the, I think the perceptions a bit. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, on its own, it's like, okay, this is what it does. And it can yeah. make some pretty, you made a really cool video on Facebook that had a lot of tambral characteristics that folks kind of went crazy for, you know, some people are saying, oh, I wish I had that instead of the 297 or, you know, what is that? Is that a new module that you created? That's <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like the second video on the internet to ever <laughs> yeah. come out about this thing. So, uh, you know, it's, it's intriguing, but. I, uh, yeah, my, my patience wears, yep, I could tell, wears out pretty, pretty quickly with it. You were practically doing that hand thing to indicate, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, ra- yeah, the wrap it up, yeah, wrap it up. <laughs> right after I started talking about the outputs, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <this> <laughs> wrap it up. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's what it yeah. is, you know, it's yeah. a tone generator, it's, it's not an oscillator, it does like a very cool, uh, audio illusion, um, yep. It's a good drone machine with a little bug in there that will kind of haunt you forever. Clip, you know. Somebody, when I posted a demo of this on SoundCloud some years ago, somebody said it was nightmare fuel, which I thought was <laughs> yeah. There's a really because of that clown, you know, that organ grinder type. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. I I told Kyle when I came over that if we had done this featured module the old way, where we each did our own demo of it, I was going to use it to make the theme song from Killer Clowns from Outer Space. <laughs> Because it's got that, that and then I know, would have like inadvertently somehow not knowing that done the same, <laughs> with the, <laughs> same but with thing. the guitars. Yeah, you could have gone the whole way. Oh, man. <laughs> Sine waves, you know. What are you gonna do? <laughs> All right, so I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for hanging out with the two hundred and sixty E today. It's been a long time coming. like to thank david keen for being on the show today check out his website www is that too many w's that's a lot of w's man uh <laughs> dot uh own Martineau, which is o-n-d-e-s-m-a-r-t-e-n-o-t dot com uh yeah to check out the beautiful instrument that he's building Andrea. and uh a big thanks to alec roush for uh, loaning us the 260E duophonic pitch class generator. Check out a few friends' podcasts. We got Tim Held's podcast, the Podular Podcast, Jay Ryan's the Deerhorn Podcast, and the Galaxy Electric's Cosmic Tape Music Club Podcast. If you want to help support the show, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com slash source of uncertainty. And you can get your source of uncertainty t-shirts at sourceofuncertainty.threadless.com. You can find out more about the show or contact us through our website at sourceofuncertainty.audio. We'd love to hear from you. And you can find us on Instagram at sourceofuncertainty and search us on YouTube. Till next time. Bye.